As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Soccer 101, the show where we scratch the soccer itches you never knew you had. We find ourselves, listener, in the midst of yet another summer transfer window with questions over who will stay, who will go, and which agents will be able to afford a new Bentley. Today, we're looking at the biggest transfers of all time, our personal favourite transfers of all time, and the deals that really move the needle in bringing change in the beautiful game. My name's Ryan Bailey. Here on a high percentage deal is Taylor Rockwell. Hello, I'll take that deal. Uh, Here triggering the awesomeness clause in his contract, Joe Lowry. Hello, Ryan. And here holding up one of his thousands of shirts for the media, doing some keep-ups on the field and having his picture taken doing a thumbs-up during a medical, Graham Ruffin. (laughs) Hello, Ryan Bailey. Tried to theme them all around transfer stuff. Do you see what I did there? I did, yeah. Excellent. Thanks. Good stuff. All right, why don't we get started? Uh, Graham, I'll come to you straight away. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to know what makes a good transfer. For me, it's the same thing as going to Chili's. It's about filling a hole at a reasonable price. Oh yeah, pre- pretty much. Absolutely. I'm not sure you're going to do that at Chili's. But anyway, that is not the discussion. Yeah, from a transfer, a soccer transfer, primarily you want value for money. You don't want to be overpaying for a player in the transfer market. So part of the battle with making a good transfer is working out the value of players, not just the value of players in the open market, but also what is the value of a player to you and your team. Just because a player is worth a certain amount to another team doesn't necessarily mean that they're worth that much to you and then another aspect of what makes a good transfer is will they change the style of a team or allow that team to play in a, in a different way whether that's a plan a or maybe as a plan b alternatively a good transfer could be a player that immediately fits into the team and the system that you have already built so look at someone like Luis diaz who looks like he's been playing for liverpool for years despite only joining them in the in the january transfer window and transfers they're not the only way to build a team but they can be the most effective and certainly the quickest way to build a team. So they're a fundamental part of the sport, certainly in the 21st century, when transfer speculation almost feels like a sport in itself. It's almost (laughs) bigger than soccer itself, and that's certainly the case at this time of year. Is that because, Graham, it's actually quite hard to judge what is a good and a bad transfer? Certainly, you know, from the perspective of the buying team. Uh, Let's be honest, a lot of very, very rich teams 
uh, have uh, uh, scouting teams, they have the data, the analytics, and they bring in players. And it doesn't always work. Sometimes they tend to be bad transfers. And it's kind of like a sport because, you know, you don't, you don't know who's going to win in a certain way. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Yeah, and I think that it always seems to be a curse when a team wins the transfer window because those 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 uh, transfers don't always pan out as you expect. Mm. I personally, and I don't think I was alone on this podcast, I thought Manchester United had a good transfer window last summer when they brought in Sancho, Varane and Ronaldo. That obviously did not materialise over the course of the season. They had a disastrous season and other teams who maybe didn't spend as much and get as, as big names in, they maybe got more for their money. Maybe someone like Arsenal who who brought in Aaron Ramsdale. I remember Aaron Ramsdale, when that signing happened, a lot of people thought that was a unnecessary addition. They didn't need a goalkeeper and they didn't think he was good enough. And now people talk about him as a future England number one. So transfers, maybe in terms of deep data, there are, there are people at these clubs with a deeper understanding than us laymen. But yeah, it's, it is a sport in itself because of, as you say, the predictions of, and it's fun to, to make those predictions of how is a player going to fit into this into this team. We have it this week with Darwin Nunes. He's not necessarily a typical Liverpool striker. So there's a lot of discussion about how he's going to fit into that team. And, and it's fun to have those debates. Tata, um, anything to add on what makes a good transfer? No, I'm just excited to talk them out and then figure out if we all end up agreeing on what makes a good transfer based on our favorite ones from all time. Wonderful stuff. Well, why don't we why don't we flip the coin, Joe? And are there any tenets of a bad transfer? I'm assuming it's things like um, deals done without due diligence, deals done with <laughs> yeah. players who have injury issues that aren't uh, that are, that are undiscovered. Um, maybe even deals done for commercial reasons, deals done for the wrong reasons. And I was trying to think of some examples of that, and there are good examples of that, like Park Ji Sung. I think Man United. Uh, admitted mm. they wanted to tap into a new um, market in bringing him in, for example. But obviously, he was a very good player as well. So, uh, bad transfers, Joe. What what constitutes them? Just do your homework. I think when when teams aren't doing their homework, that's when you start to see some of those bad moves happen. So, when you're playing, when 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 you're going out and paying a big chunk of money for a player that maybe isn't even going to fit your team or has been grossly overperforming their their numbers and, and hasn't really been all that good, but maybe just getting a little lucky, those aren't always moves that you want to make. So I think clubs need to be sure always to make sure that they're doing an appropriate amount of background research. And this these, these two ideas of good transfers and bad transfers are linked, right? Because deals can go either way. Ian Graham, Dr. Ian Graham, who is Liverpool's director of research, I believe, gave a talk at a, at a data and analytics conference recently in the last couple of years. And he basically posited that transfers have a 50% chance of success. So it really can go either way. And, and there's so many different reasons why a transfer can fail. Even if you think you have a home run in, in the bag, right, and that you are going to knock this one out of the park, it's very difficult to actually get that player to succeed and to fit in seamlessly with the team. So the number of issues you could have, injuries could be a part of this. Maybe they actually aren't a good fit for your club. Maybe they don't fit on a personality level. Maybe another player in the squad that you already have overperforms their expectations and takes their spot. There's a dozen reasons why, and 10 reasons why, a transfer could go wrong. And if, if each one of those reasons is just 5% likely, you're starting to rack up that percentage. And so it's a risk. Transfers are absolutely a risk. But the more clubs do their homework, the more they try to look into the numbers and watch the film and do extensive player background research, that's only going to help. And then the other piece here is just try not to overpay, right? I think you can find value in Liverpool. I know I mentioned Ian Graham and, and Liverpool there. Liverpool, I think, have done a fairly good job of finding value. Yeah, they've shelled out a lot of money, more money than a lot of other clubs could ever dream of spending. 
But still, I think they have found some valuable players and gotten them at the right time or for the right amount, and that goes a really long way. I agree with everything Joe said. The other thing I would add, and I think this has been improved over the years, but for a while, I think clubs approached it with, we're signing this player, they're coming in, we'll figure out how to use them, but everything else is kind of their business, including how they get here, how they get settled, where they live. And I think it was Anelka uh, talked about how he could basically... He felt like he knew if it was going to work out when he moved to a club, if they were taking the time and consideration to help him find a place to live, help him bet in, understand where things were. I think Madrid was the one where he like had to get himself to the club for his medical or something like that. And he just <laughs> felt like there wasn't a ton of effort uh, placed on like the human side of things. And I do think clubs increasingly have real estate agents or properties already available for players. They have a lot of things to help people get accustomed to a new country. They have people, I think, who can be like cultural liaisons to help them bridge some of those divides. So I think that can even be part of it, is how you help the player once they've arrived bet in can have a lot of bearing on whether or not that transfer plays out. Yeah, uh, obviously important for clubs who are receiving a Nicholas Anelka for them to be uh, able to deal with his nonsense uh, as bit, well. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it's interesting you mentioned the, the um, how, how welcome players are made to Phil Taylor. I think it's Man City who were kind of pioneers, certainly in the Premier League, of having a whole department, a whole office dedicated to yeah. making sure their players just focus on soccer. Like There's a guy who pays all their bills. There's a guy who goes and gets their cars. There's a guy who literally sorts out all their accommodation, all their flights for their families. So like, they, they worry about literally nothing apart from putting food in their bodies and uh, and playing soccer. So that, that is interesting to consider. And they still forgot to buy Yaya Toure a birthday cake. Did they? Yeah, that feels increasingly deliberate now that we know all those <laughs> things. And yet I have to believe that those are the same people who got Mario Balotelli fireworks at the same time. <laughs> well, I got a fireworks guy in the office. I just don't have a of birthday course. cake guy. That's the fireworks guy. What <laughs> <laughs> needs a fireworks guy. Um, so we are on this podcast going to talk about the transfers that changed soccer, the landmark deals, if you will. But I'd like to go around uh, and talk about some of our favorite deals. And Taylor, I invite you to put that pretty little mouth close to the mic and tell us about some deals that you liked. I am uncomfortable. Uh, I will start us off with, with one that... Uh, I think it is one of my favorites just because it seems like such a perfect blend of the player with the city. It's Diego Maradona moving from Barcelona to Napoli in 1984 for, I believe, 7 million pounds. And this is Napoli who, I always quote that the Furio scene in The Sopranos where he talks about how much he hates the North and how they always made him feel disrespected. And that does seem to be the city of Napoli in a nutshell. Uh, Maradona moving from Barcelona where he felt very much unappreciated to Napoli. I think he had a similar chip on his shoulder and you combine those two things and you get like history in a bunch of different ways. But Maradona does lead Napoli to their uh, first Scudetto in 1987. They win uh, UEFA Cup in 89. They win another league in 1990. And they hadn't really had much success prior to that. As I said, it's their first Scudetto, but it's also in my mind a transfer that if not putting Napoli on the map, I do think that's a reason why Napoli will forever have relevance. It's Diego Maradona's club. It's the club that that brought him in, that sort of blended his identity with their own. And so I think there will always be an appeal to Napoli, even if they're not one of the biggest teams, even if they're not one of the best teams. Uh, I forget who it was, uh, Diego something, who chose to play for them because he was named after Diego Maradona. Like, those types of moments stand... Diego Deme uh, chose to play for Napoli because he was named after him. So why not go there and, and follow in his namesake's footsteps? 
a move like that that has somebody being named after a player and wanting to play for that same club, I think, has to be seen as pretty successful. Yeah, I think if your if your stadium is named after that player as well, yeah, it bit, means you had bit. a pretty good run at that yeah. club. I suggest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of which, uh, you have Johan Cruyff, but not for the team who had a stadium named after him. I think we we each have have a Cruyff. Joe, do you want to do your Cruyff and then I'll do my Cruyff? Mm. Sure, I think that works. I think that works. Uh, so I have Johan Cruyff and his move from Ajax to Barcelona in 1973. And Taylor's Cruyff move comes a little bit later on. That later. move, yeah, just a little bit later. That move uh, from from Ajax to Barcelona was a 900,000 pound move, which was a world record fee at the time. So that you have that Maybe. part about this transfer and how it impacted soccer, and it's it's just a lot of money. The other part for me and how impactful and interesting I think this move is, is how Johan Cruyff changed Barcelona. That's why this is on my list. I have three different moves that I think are, are really fascinating. That's why this is mine. Cruyff helped Barcelona win their first league title since 1960. That season, where he moves, Barcelona beat Real Madrid 5-0 at the Bernabeu, which just wasn't happening at that time. Real Madrid were a better team than Barcelona in that era. And now all of a sudden Cruyff is here and he wins European Footballer of the Year in 1974. He plays for Barca until 1978. In that time, they win a couple of trophies. They win La Liga, as I said, for the first time since 1960. So you have all of that. It starts to give Barcelona relevance. But really, I think this starts to get good and this move starts to truly pay off for Barcelona in a more lasting sense when Johan Cruyff comes back to Barcelona as a manager starting in 1988. Now maybe... Cruyff would have gone and coached Barcelona anyway. He'd already coached other teams before this. It wasn't like Barca was his first managerial appointment. But still, I I wonder if he ever would have gone to Barcelona, gone to Catalonia and and coached if he hadn't been there as a player. And, And so when he did coach Barcelona, he took a team that was in debt, that lacked quality, again, relative to other sides in the league, and turned them into one of the dream teams in soccer's history. Pep Guardiola, Ronald Koeman, uh, Michael Laudrup, Stoichkov, many other players, Baccaro in there. That was a team that won trophies and and also that earned an identity under Johan Cruyff and turned Barcelona into a dynasty for a while, eventually under Pep Guardiola. And then now you're getting even more Cruyff influence through Pep, now with Xavi coaching Barcelona. So... I think that is a landmark transfer in the history of soccer, Cruyff moving to Barcelona in 1973, partially for what it was at the time, and, and but maybe even more so for what it meant to Barcelona in, in the future, back in the 80s and now even today. That's one of my favorite moves because of what it meant for that club. You mentioned a Barcelona in debt and lacking quality relative to other teams in the league. <laughs> what a long time ago that seems, Joe. What a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, it's happened a few times in the last few decades. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, Taylor, you mentioned a Cruyff move uh, on your docket too. Uh, yes, uh, and I'll say it's because Joe already had uh, Cruyff to Barcelona, which Aha! I think is the best transfer of all time. Genuinely, I do. I mean, because Barcelona, a huge club, but I, th- that's their first european cup right when he takes over as manager there and it kind of goes from there so i think you could see modern barcelona as joe said as not necessarily starting with johan cruyff because they were around for a while but i do think he is just so instrumental uh, as a player as a manager but he is also a temperamental figure we know this mm-hmm. uh and i would say his transfer to feyenoord is one of my favorite uh transfers one of the best transfers because it worked out for feyenoord it worked out for cruyff and it's also just a reminder 
to clubs around the world that though you think a player may be slightly long in the tooth and ready to be moved on, doesn't mean that they agree with you and doesn't mean that they're going to love when you make that decision. In this case, Johan Cruyff, I think 36 years old at the time, playing uh, for Ajax at the end of the 1983 season, is told, we're not going to give you another deal. That That's like, you're welcome to go look for another club, but... Uh, we we want to invest in this younger squad. We want to kind of give minutes to younger players coming through. And Cruyff, by all accounts, had been kind of already moving into a player manager. It was his force of will. He kind of bends the team to his identity. And I felt like this was a complete slap in the face. And by all accounts, up until he ends up signing his deal with Feyenoord, expected Ajax to come back and say, never mind, we were wrong, or we were calling your bluff, you've called ours, you'll be back at Ajax. That doesn't happen. He goes to Feyenoord, their rivals. Uh, They lose their first game against Ajax 8-2. But I was reading a history of that game, and the feeling with with Feyenoord in that moment was that they were still learning the tenets of total football and how Cruyff wanted them to play, whereas Ajax were coasting on the tenets of total football that Cruyff had instilled. The second time they meet that season, Feyenoord have already moved away uh, in terms of where they are on the table. Feyenoord win that one 4-1. to one. Ajax look kind of completely all over the place. Feyenoord go on to win the league that season. Cruyff wins Dutch Player of the Year and then retires immediately afterwards as a player. And I think a year later is appointed Ajax manager. So I think proved his point that he still had some fuel in the tank, but also that he could go to a club and make them instant champions. Johan Cruyff, pretty good player, pretty good manager. Graham, I assume your first pick is Cruyff to the Los Angeles Aztecs. <laughs> I mean, I personally love that year of American soccer. So yeah, why not? Let's go for go for that one. It was either that or, or uh, Pele to the Cosmos. <laughs> Anything else you want to highlight at this point, Graham? Not in, not in terms of the historical stuff. I, my first pick is something a slightly more uh, recent, I would say. Go on. So I've gone for, I mean... I'm nothing but predictable. I've gone for Andy Robertson. Of course, I have to pick a Scott as as my first pick. Signed for just £8 million from Hull City in 2017. Not many predicted at that point that Robertson would then go on to become one of the best fullbacks in the world for Liverpool, which he he has done in the the last five to six years. I think Alexander-Arnold, who obviously plays on the right side of that Liverpool defence, I think he's a more refined player. But I honestly believe there's a solid solid argument that Robertson is a more rounded player. He's got that crossing ability. He gets up and down just like uh, Alexander-Arnold does. But there's also that defensive awareness and steel there that that isn't, I don't think, is always there with uh, TAA. And when you consider that City have paid for what they've paid for some of their fullbacks, so £50 million for Kyle Walker, £60 million for Yao Cancelo, I think £8 million for Andy Robertson who has been one of the best around for the last five seasons, as I say. I think that's incredible business. And he's still only 28. He's he's in the prime of his career now. You would say he's got a good few years left him, in him as Liverpool's first pick at left-back. So he is, he's made my list. I don't know how I follow up that, frankly, um, Robertson. Um, but uh, how about Cristiano Ronaldo? I think it's the, uh, the deal that took him <laughs> to Real Madrid, I think, might be the best of the modern era, or certainly one of the most memorable from my perspective. You, you remember it was, oh, I've forgotten the year. Was it 2009? When 2009, yes. yeah. Yeah, yep. good. Uh, 94 million euros he cost. He was a world record transfer at the time. A 1 billion buyout clause he had at that time. This is, of course, in the context of uh, Sir Alex Ferguson being at Manchester United, the selling club, who said not long before he wouldn't sell Real Madrid a virus. And yet 
months later sold them um, the most expensive the best player in the world um it was memorable for me graham because of that arrival at the bernabeu as well yeah that, that unveiling the week before they bought kaka which was a massive massive signing as well and they had something like forty thousand people turn up at the bernabeu uh they filled that thing out for ronaldo like he got double the attendance basically which made Kaká probably feel a bit bad, but it was a week later and they filled it out and he had the stage and it, it just looked spectacular. They had him like walking a runway. He had the number nine shirt on because he couldn't get his uh, special number seven shirt because the captain Raul was possessing that shirt at the time. And it, it was just a Real Madrid team that spent absurd amounts that season. They brought in that same season, the aforementioned Kaká. They brought in Xavi Alonso that season. They brought in Karim Benzema that same window as well. Uh, and then you look at the impact that Ronaldo had, obviously, in the Liga. Won 15 trophies, Rambridge's all-time top scorer, four Ballon d'Or at that time. And, of course, part of the best player rivalry I think we'll ever see in the mm. game as well. For me, Graham, Ronaldo is the big one. I, I remember that transfer so vividly because £80 million for a single player just seemed absolutely insane mm. at that time because Zidane's records, which we might mention later on, I think it was about forty-five million pounds, and that that stood for what felt like a quite a long time, and so for Real Madrid, I know Kaká the week before was fifty-six, yeah, and broke he broke that record. Yeah, so they broke it twice in a week, but for to go from fifty-six to eighty for a player, I, I at that time I I wasn't sure I'd ever see a player go for that level of money, and within a few years, eighty million pounds for Cristiano Ronaldo seemed a bargain, and <laughs> uh, in, in hindsight, actually. And Indeed. it's also, that, that transfer is also interesting to me uh, for all the reasons that have already been discussed, but also that quote from Ferguson is really odd because, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, what I have always understood is that that was a, a deal that was done the year before. And it was basically Madrid had been linked with him for so long, so aggressively. It was a story every single window. Uh, as a Manchester United fan, it was constantly anxiety-inducing. And yet that final season, it was it was much quieter. Uh, and then I think the offer comes in. It is a fax. It's just here's the amount. Manchester United agrees, and it's done. It was done like so quickly for that type of player that it indicated that there had already been lengthy negotiations uh, before. And I think it does end up maybe coming out. Maybe that was just the rumor that they had agreed at the summer before yeah. that it would happen the next summer. Mm. And and to me, not just because of that, but because it reveals how much is going on that we don't know about. That if that is the case, that it was agreed upon a year before. You would assume Sir Alex Ferguson would know that, given that he had a hand in pretty much every single activity at Manchester United. So then to deliver that quote is a lot of gamesmanship. It is a clever sort of disguise there to act as though, no, we're never selling him when he already kind of knew they were. So I think it's a reminder that things are not always what they seem, but also that if you can sign one of the best players in the world, you should probably do it. You should indeed. Um, maybe we should have taken him at face value, Taylor. He said he wouldn't sell Real Madrid a virus. Maybe he didn't sell it to them and he sold it to a, wo a lab in Wuhan and, you know, things. Oh, boy. Went, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> I went there. Sorry. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about more of the best transfers of all time. That's a night of the realm, sir. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to Soccer 101. We are talking about some of the greatest transfers of all time. Uh, Taylor, where did you land next? Uh, I would put David Beckham on that list for a number of different reasons. David Beckham's move to the LA Galaxy. Uh, obviously, it gets headlines for a league that didn't have as big of headlines at that time that you're bringing in this global stu- superstar. There's a movie about him. I can't believe we're going to get him. And then he comes in and uh, starts off slow. They end up winning, what, two MLS Cups, I think, with him there. But it establishes the Galaxy as an MLS brand. And they're able to go out and get that Herbalife deal. They get a ton of different sponsorship deals that maybe they wouldn't have been able to get or not for the money that they end up getting because... Beckham is there, and I think it also creates the idea that the Galaxy are a club where you can become a brand, you can become an institution, and so I I have to believe that part of that is how they get Chicharito, that that's the club of David Beckham, you can be on that same profile, that same level if you go there but then there's unintended consequences and intended consequences one of those would be he builds in that he gets a franchise for a set fee which ends up being drastically below what people are now paying for expansion uh teams so that i think makes it landmark and successful from his perspective but also those first couple seasons that aren't successful and there's the whole rude hullet saga that leads to the Beckham experiment, the Grant Wall book. And for me, that was a book that I read and thought like, I want to do this for a living. I want to know all the gossip that's going on in soccer teams and how they're basically the exact same thing as a a college team or a club team, just with more money and more drama. Uh, And so I think you got all of the headlines off field, on field, you got some silverware. And it also happened to be that when he agreed to that deal, he wasn't in good form. Madrid weren't interested in renewing his deal. And so it seemed like, ah, he's kind of surplus to requirement. Well, he'll go to MLS and that's where he'll end up retiring. And then he has an incredible second half of the season. And I think there are even attempts by Madrid to undo that deal so that they can then renew him. That doesn't come to be. But so you end up getting David Beckham, who we find out after the fact is is injured when he arrives. But Mm -hmm. he has all this hype. He's still this world-class Beckham, at least to the media. And I think we haven't seen a transfer like that in MLS since then. Indeed. Uh, Graham, any other deals you wanted to bring to the table? Yes, I'm going to tie two transfers together. And the reason I'm going to tie them together is I think they transformed the teams that they joined. So the two are Thierry Henry to Arsenal and Eric Cantona to Manchester United. So we'll start with Henry. Arsenal were a good team before the signing of Henry. Uh, He joins them in 1998. They'd already won a Premier League title. But that signing just took Wenger's team to a completely another level. And he only cost £11 million, which I know back then was uh, a hefty fee. But still, it's a long way short of the the Shearer fee at that time. And he goes on to become, in my opinion, the best ever Premier League era player. And not only this... When he arrives at Arsenal, he's seen as a winger. That's the role he'd played for Juventus, but Wenger saw something in his game that suggested he would be better as a centre-forward. And that change is one of the best positional changes that has ever happened in in soccer. As I say, it turned him into one of the best ever Premier League players and into a superstar. And along the same lines as Henri, uh, a transfer that took Manchester United to the next level was Eric Cantona. At the time, he was seen as damaged goods. He'd been a disruptive figure at Leeds. But Ferguson at that time, he decided his team needed a bit more character and a bit more guile in in the attack. 
and he signed Cantona for just £1 million, despite everyone telling him that he was crazy to, to do that. There's, uh, in the, I think it's in the Ferguson documentary, there's the press conference where he presents Cantona, and all the questions are about, basically, is this guy going to cause trouble in the dressing room? And Ferguson just had faith in, in, in Cantona, and that got the absolute best out of him. And he was the player that pushed Manchester, Manchester United to that uh, next level and he was the catalyst for so much of Ferguson's era as Manchester City manager they had been successful before Cantona but after Cantona was just a completely different thing and they became the dominant team even after Cantona left because he wasn't there for long but even after he left there was that lasting legacy as well definitely so while we're talking about sort of legendary Premier League players Graham as well I, I'd like to bring Alan Shearer's transfer to Newcastle United onto the table as well this is in 1996 uh, Shearer was a player who was very good at Southampton as a teenager and as a young man. Um, he helped Blackburn win the Premier League, of course. Uh, that was back when Jack Walker was the owner of Blackburn and was pumping a lot of money in, um, which seems kind of quaint now. And also what seems quaint is that the fee that Alan Shearer went to Newcastle for was £15 million, which was the world record fee in 1996. Um, he signed for Newcastle after Euro 96, the tournament which was held in England, of course. And interestingly, he spurned the chance to go to Manchester United. Alex Ferguson wanted him at Manchester United. He instead uh, wanted the opportunity to return to his native North East instead. Uh, he went to two FA Cup finals. He got multiple Champions League campaigns. He was the club's all-time top scorer. It's one of those what ifs. Taylor, what do you think about this? What if Alan Shearer had, had have signed for Man United instead? And you could argue the same thing about Paul Gascoigne, who also had a similar conundrum. But um, as much as it was an important deal for the Premier League, an important deal for English soccer, Shearer at Man United would have been pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I wonder who they don't end up signing that becomes like a club icon down the road. But that aside, Alan Shearer as a Manchester United legend would be just fine with me. And especially so because as he's... Uh, aged, I really love him on Match of the Day when I'm when I'm able to watch it, and I find his analysis really interesting. And I think he he tends to bring, I don't know, a good mind to things. Mm. So I would like the idea of getting to watch him with him also being a Manchester United icon. That's fine with me. So so Dwight York was after Shearer, right? I've just googled it. So that was 1998. He joins mm. from Villa. Mm. So instead of Colin York, maybe you have Colin Shearer. That's not a bad front two. Sounds right. That's not so like, bad um, at all. That also probably benefits England a little bit. Yeah. Because you had famously at Blackburn, the SAS, Shearer and Sutton, and that was a pretty good combo. Um, I think that would have been an equally good one as well, Graham. Mm. Um, Joe Lowry, any other deals that uh, piqued your interest? So another one for me, I'm staying in Spain, is Marcelo's move to Real Madrid from Fluminense in 2007 for $8.7 million, which was a, a decent chunk of change at that point. Certainly not so much now, but either way, Money well spent. This is quick. Marcelo has now won 25 trophies after winning this most recent Champions League. 25 trophies, trophies with Real Madrid and is the most decorated Real Madrid player of all time. Five Champions Leagues, six La Liga titles, four Club World Cups, two Copa del Reyes, and there's a bunch of others in there as well that are maybe slightly less notable. But well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's done everything. He has done everything with Real Madrid. He's been a captain for them. He is a legendary player. He will probably never be the guy you think of when you think of Real Madrid, but maybe he should be. So that's, that's one transfer I had. And then my last one quickly is Taylor took us to MLS earlier. I'm going to take us back there. And for what it meant to MLS, Joseph Martinez and Miguel Almiron to Atlanta United ahead of their expansion season. Atlanta pushed the boundaries 
on what an MLS expansion team could be. Joseph Martinez coming from Torino in Serie A in 2017, where he was playing as a winger. Atlanta signed him on loan with an option to buy. Tata Martino put him up front, and just like a little bit into the season, they triggered that option to buy. So that was Joseph. And then Miguel Amiron came from Lanús in Argentina back in 2016 at the end of the year for around $8 million. That was a lot of money, and still would be a lot of money today, for MLS and for a team in MLS to spend $8 million on a, a playmaker in an expansion season. That was a big deal. And to have both of those players hit in the way they did and then Amiron to go to the Premier League along with Alfonso Davies and kind of be a big MLS export. And, and I think his time in Premier League has been a little mixed because he's been playing for Newcastle of all teams. But man, just one of the most fun duos in MLS history that helped form one of the most entertaining teams in MLS history. I, I love those two moves. Good times in that city, as we refer to them in Charlotte, Joe. Thank you very much. Uh, We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the transfers that changed the soccer landscape. Back shortly. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Soccer 101, welcome back. We are talking about the transfers that changed soccer. Joe, what you got in this category, bud? So I think there's a whole category here of transfers that inflated the market. And I have a couple that I think really did that in the last decade, decade and a half kind of span. One is Ronaldo to Manchester United. We already talked about this, so I'm not going to stick here long. But Real Madrid paid £24 million more than they did for Kaká that year as well, at least based on transfer fees. So that was a a good chunk of change, more than they'd already broken the transfer record for in the same year. So that's a big one. It was a lot of money for Cristiano Ronaldo back in 2009. And his fee was the record fee all the way up until Pogba's move from Juventus to Manchester United in 2016. So that number lasted for a long time. I do think that move partially inflated the market. Another one in really a series of moves in this same category is Neymar, going from Barca to PSG in 2017 for £222 million. This is still the world record transfer fee today. And it queued a series of moves from FC Barcelona that also, I think, heavily inflated the transfer market. Dembele, Coutinho, and Antoine Griezmann in consecutive years. All three of those players are still three of the eight most expensive transfer fees of all time. You toss the Neymar move in there, and you kind of have four moves that are all related that I think were all inflated. Maybe Neymar less than the others just because of the talent that he he was and still is and was always going to fetch a high transfer fee. But queuing Dembele, Coutinho, and Griezmann to move for how much they did, I think that definitely inflated the market. And and this is the one for me. that this is this is We're still feeling the ripples of this transfer today because at least with Cristiano Ronaldo at that point 2009 he was the Ballon d'Or holder he was the the best player in the world even in the years that were after that he's one of the best two players in the world not interested in that debate but Neymar maybe wasn't quite at that level and another one similarly that inflated the market was Pogba because Pogba wasn't the best player in the world at that time when Man United paid 89 million pounds for him that was the year before Neymar so what that what happens then is all the players below 
the best in the world, that top level, they all get lifted up. As you say, Joe, those players that Barcelona signed, Coutinho, that he never goes for 130 million euros if Neymar doesn't go to, to PSG for that amount. Dembele, he doesn't go for that amount. There's probably a full list of players whose transfers were inflated because they were seen in that tier two or even tier three, and they're all getting lifted up by that transfer. And as I say, I, I still feel like we're seeing the knock-on effect of that Neymar transfer today. I'm going to nominate in this category and take a slight turn for a series of transfers that I think changed the soccer landscape. If I might nominate um, the transfers that built Leicester City's Premier League winning team. Mm. I'll take, say, N'Golo Kante as an example here because I think the scouting job that Leicester did is one of the best examples of scouting that we've seen in world soccer um you know this is a team it was steve walsh was the scout um the, the assistant manager at leicester who sort of brought in these players he brought in ongolo county he brought in jamie vardy Riyad Mahrez. he brought in christian fuchs as well actually basically scouring second division tiers in europe and finding um, these um unpolished gems if you will and just Obviously, to take those and have the alchemy to bring that Leicester team together to win the Premier League is something we'll probably never see again. I think that is incredible, the way that that happened. And it could probably, Taylor, never happen again under those circumstances. I mean, if if it does, I would assume that the betting odds will be equally ridiculous. But yeah, <laughs> uh, like, yeah, for the, for the players that they're able to bring in for the amount they are and how it establishes a pattern of their scouting system being able to identify really really talented players who are incredibly undervalued and then I think it becomes more and more common knowledge how they were able to do that and what statistics they were looking for and I think it also kind of shapes recruitment for years afterward yeah I think that's that's a great shout Ryan yeah and obviously the resale value they've had on some of those players Riyad is going to Man City and, and, and Kante going to Chelsea as well it's a very very good business and yet they... and yet they still haven't recovered from the sale of Danny Drinkwater yeah, that, yeah. Was a, that was a that was a trickier one. Let's uh, let's <laughs> put that in a different category. <laughs> Shall we tell? Um, is there anything else in this category of landmark or transfers that change soccer that you wanted to highlight, Tete? Yeah, I, I would throw uh, Javier Mascherano and Carlos Tevez moving Ooh. to West Ham as one because I remember at the time being like, "Wait, what? <laughs> they got who?" Um, and when it was announced, it was. It was very, like, if ever you were looking for a red flag for a warning sign for there being smoke where there's fire, it was, uh, yeah, we were able to get them both. Uh, please don't ask us any more questions. All the terms <laughs> will remain confidential and undisclosed. <laughs> and it turns out later on uh, that it's basically third-party ownership. It violates a bunch of agreements. There ends up being a $20 million, or $20 million pound, excuse me, out-of-court settlement. It has impacts on the relegation uh, race. Both players leave the club very quickly afterwards and just a very confusing situation that highlighted how I think to me, it felt like there was this idea that like, yeah, but the Premier League is an institution and there's no way such nonsense can impact us. And yet it exactly did. And so it's a reminder that there can be nefarious deals that maybe we don't mm. realize are happening or even seem very obviously to be happening, but can still go through and can still have an effect. Just ask uh, Sheffield United. So yeah. that yeah. would be one that I think was pretty transformative in my mind. This is a good one, Taylor, because for me, this is the star of the age of the super agent. I'm sure... Yeah. There had, I'm sure I'd heard of agents before then, but it was, it was, this was the start of the consideration that an agent could actually dictate transfers and could send players to certain places. And obviously, we've had that with Jorge Mendes and Mino Raiola and Kia Jarabshin, who was uh, Tevez's, or I'm not sure, I know Tevez has retired recently, but I don't know if he was his agent up until recently. But this was the, this was the first time that I had really 
considered that as a factor in the transfer market. And of course, with Tevez, I would argue that he was involved in two landmark transfers in the Premier League, Premier League era. Oh, so there's yeah. this one to West Ham. But then there's the transfer from City, sorry, from United to City, mm. which kind of announced City as a, as a force, a real force in the Premier League. And obviously they've gone on to become the dominant team in the Premier League over the last decade. And I would argue that that really started... I know a lot of people look to Rubinho as the first transfer but for me Tevez was the first deal that they did that really said we can go and get the best players in the world from the best teams in the world and there's nothing that you can do about it yeah and the welcome to Manchester announcement billboard was as Manchester United fan infuriating and especially because I like Carlos Tevez but it also in retrospect feels like a you come at the king you best not miss sort of statement (laughs) of They had that billboard, and now here we are with Man City winning a bunch of things and Manchester United doing the opposite of that. Not saying that it's the Carlos Tevez deal that did that, but but yeah, Carlos Tevez definitely has a big old role for Man City. Yeah, obviously there have been those controversial uh, transfers of crossing uncrossable lines like the Manchester divide, for example. We should probably talk about Luis Figo and his move. Uh, He's not the only player to do it, but of course moving from um, across the Barcelona-Madrid divide. Who wants to tackle that? I can I can tackle a little bit. Uh, Thirty-seven million pounds in the year two thousand is no small small sum. But yeah, it's it's Figo. Like you're right, some players have done it. It didn't seem like it would ever be possible. It felt like he was such an important player for Barcelona that he wouldn't they he wouldn't be sold. He wouldn't be allowed to move, and yet he moves to Madrid, and I think is arguably one of their most successful signings of that Galactico era, and also has a big sort of influence in them establishing that policy, and then other people following, or other players kind of following him there. Uh, and obviously there's the pig head incident when he has a pig thrown at him, a pig head thrown at him yeah. while he's taking a corner. Like that shows you the level of anger that Vespa. that move brought about. Yeah, yes, yes. And then he avoided the, he avoided having a Vespa thrown at him as of now. I don't know if that's changed, but <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. It's interesting, Graham. Obviously there was a lot of um, vitriol and hatred around that move, but you think like Michael Laudrup did the same thing. Um, R9 Ronaldo played for both teams as well, but they seem to not get that same level of abuse um so i can't remember the loudrop one ronaldo went to enter in between didn't yeah. he so he didn't go directly so i think that that is maybe a, a a factor with figo i also think just figo was at that time uh, a lot of people would argue was the best player in the world and if my memory serves me correctly he'd come out with a lot of statements which had basically said I'm not going to Real Madrid. I would never go to Real Madrid. Barcelona is my club. And then within a few weeks, he is he's signed for Real Madrid. So I think the circumstances were maybe slightly more toxic around that one. And he, he maybe didn't help himself by making a lot of those statements. I think, I think it's also just that Figo goes from Barcelona, where he had, I think, helped them win the title at the end of the 99 season. There's a year off, but then Madrid win like two titles in three years. They win the Champions League. And there's probably also some bitterness from Barcelona of you went from a successful team to another team and then helped them become very, very successful and win a bunch of silverware. We don't love that. If he had moved and been mediocre and then moved on to another club, mm. I don't know if there would be that level of anger. And and also him moving away from Barcelona coincided with a bit of a dip from Barcelona yeah. at the start of the 2000s when they were struggling even to finish in the top three in Spain. So that was maybe another reason why Barcelona fans... They don't remember him too fondly to this day. <laughs> uh, so here we go on a wonderful walk down memory lane uh, for some of the biggest transfers in soccer history. Guys, I'm going to give you one more chance to voice any other deals at this point before we head so, off into the sunset. Graham. 
So I have to mention, I'm not sure if it's in Landmark or maybe just one of my favourite transfers. I have to mention Alfredo De Stefano, especially when we're talking about Barcelona and Real Madrid. (laughs) So if anyone doesn't know the story, De Stefano was actually initially all set to sign for Barcelona in 1953 and he'd agreed a deal with Barcelona However, his club, uh, Milaneros, Milanarios, sorry, probably butchered that, but they refused to sign it off for whatever reason. They wouldn't let him sign for Barcelona. And then Real Madrid come in, and that led to, be, to a conflict between the two clubs, where basically Barcelona and Real Madrid both claimed that they had signed Alfredo Di Stefano. So at that point, the Spanish FA step in. Amazingly and bizarrely, they decide their outcome, their decision is that Di Stefano should play two years for Barcelona and then two years for Real Madrid. Please do this with Robert Lewandowski. This is what I want to see. <laughs> Barcelona, then disgruntled by that decision, they then give up, they relinquish their claim to Di Stefano. That was a bad move on their part because De Stefano would go on to score 307 goals in 396 games for Real Madrid. He'd win uh, European Cups. He'd be the best player in the world for a period and has still talked about as one of the best ever players and certainly one of the, the best ever Real Madrid players in history. So that's a, a strange tale uh, that led to one of the, the biggest transfers and one of the most notable transfers of all time. Yeah, and if you want to learn more about that one, listener, I think if you read Sid Lowe's book, Fear and Loathing in La Liga, there's a good uh, write-up of that too, Taylor. Uh, since Graham took us down memory lane, I'll add one more. Because uh, Joe, and I'll bring us full circle, because Joe mentioned you want to do your due diligence if you want to have a successful transfer. You don't want to be Southampton uh, getting rung up by a player pretending to be, uh, I think, George Weah saying, this guy's really good. Ali Dia was not very good. But uh, Bella Gutman, I think his barber recommended that he sign Eusebio. <laughs> I think is how it worked. Or he met, he ran into a friend in the barbershop who said, like, I just saw this guy. He's very good. And that's the very abbreviated version. But I think to get that sort of tip and end up getting a player like Eusebio is, is a pretty solid move as well. Uh, so it's the Alidea on the one side and then it's Eusebio, Eusebio on the other. And you've got to kind of, I guess, decide which one of those you want to go for. I wish my hairdresser gave me career-changing right? advice, Taylor. Mine just talks about the weather. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're just not like uh, picking up the code that's in there, and maybe that—that's what's holding Wimbledon back. Is there is actual specific instructions for signings and operations? You yep. don't get any fishing advice from your barber. <laughs> no, I keep my tackle shop separate to my hairdressers. Oh, right. Right. Okay. oh great! Well, life is ridiculous. <laughs> We do it different outside of Glasgow. Uh, anyway, I think that just about wraps up this episode of Soccer 101. We have covered some of the biggest transfers of all time. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your contribs. Thank you, my friend. Graham Ruthven, pleasure as always, sir. Thank you, Ryan Billy. Joe Lowry, thank you. You got it. And listener, thank you so much for joining us on this journey. We'll be back on the feed with another one next time. But for now, catch you later. <laughs> <laughs>